Hello, everyone. I'm Frederick Gieschen, the author of Insecurity Analysis, and today I'm very excited to share with you a conversation with my friend Dan McMurtry, the co-founder and portfolio manager at Tyro Partners. And we're going to be talking about resilience and longevity in investing, which I think is an important yet under-discussed topic for three reasons. First, if you study great investors and traders, you'll find that when they end their careers, there is a lot of cases where burnout or just sheer physical and mental exhaustion seems to play a role. It's not something that's openly discussed in, in public much, but if you read between the lines, it's, it's a theme. And I think the second reason, uh, which is why this isn't discussed in public, is that professional investors, I think, are inclined to project strength to their peers and to their, to their LPs, to their investors, and so we'll shy away from this topic, at least in public. And the third reason why it's important is that we're coming out of a 10 plus year bull market and not that many investors have lived through longer, longer bear markets like post 2000 or let alone the, the 70s. And so this feels like a topic that's both under discussed and something that one should prepare for, but it's hard to find good information. It's hard to find case studies and I want to thank Dan for being open um, and willing to talk about this and sort of share his views. Everything is just his and my opinion. And with that, well, let's go. All right. So Dan, thanks for uh, taking the time again, and I appreciate it. Um, and I want to talk about something that I think is under-discussed and is going to become maybe more topical now with, with how the market is acting, which is sort of the idea of resilience recovery, longevity as an investor. And I think there are high profile examples of people who are who are very successful in the business and then dealt with either burnout or exhaustion and sort of ended their careers on a, on a low note. Um, and I think it's been a long time that since since people really had to deal with it, right? Since maybe the 2000s or um, the 1970s bear market, like there's not a lot of examples of real longer bear markets around. So I think it's, um, the right time to talk about this, but let me let me hand you the mic and you know see if you agree and what you know how you think generally about this topic and, and why is it important to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've been managing a fund now. I'm in my seventh year, which is uh, kind of crazy. To it seems like it felt like it's been maybe thirty years or maybe one year. I don't know. It's, uh, it does weird things to your perception of time. Um, but I think that. As I've gone through this and I've studied a lot of past money managers, gotten great opportunities to be mentored by far more experienced people and, and also met a lot of contemporaries trying to you know, manage existing businesses or build businesses. And I took the route of building my own. I started with $3 million in capital and we're coming up on $100 million. We've had a good track record. We've been very you know, fortunate to have things turn out well. Uh, we've done everything we can, but I acknowledge the role of luck in a lot of things. But I do think now we're going into a period that, um, you know, could be, it's less of an event-driven uh, down in markets, and it could be a proper bear market. And a lot of people haven't experienced that before. Um, and so, you know, for two reasons, I think really thinking about resilience and recovery and how you build duration of performance into your process, I think it's really, really important. Um, you know, one, I would note that having known a lot of emerging managers, a lot of money managers, traders, et cetera, um, you know, a lot of people can look good for one to three years, maybe five years, but the number of people who can really 
continue to perform for five, 10, 20 years is fractions of that. And so many people who are genuinely brilliant um, and great across the board, I mean, there's nothing I would criticize them for. You know, they simply burn out in a way they can't recover from. And this has been the end of so many careers is, it's just they get into a position where almost they can't function. And I think if you talk to anybody who has serious experience in money management, they've seen this happen or they've experienced it, um, but it's almost never talked about. Um, and I think a lot of people right now who are younger or have gotten interested in markets in recent time are, are starting to experience a different type of pain now. Um, it's one thing when you open your portfolio and you've lost a lot of money and then a couple of weeks later, the market starts to rebound. But what almost no one in the market right now has experienced is an extended period of pain. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, evidence across different fields that uh, isolated periods of stress impact an individual very differently than extended periods of stress. And extended periods of stress start to wreak havoc on your neurology, your hormone system, everything about how your mind and body function are damaged there. And it's very easy for it to slip into damaging your personal relationships, your marriage, uh, your relationship with your children, all these other things. And so I, I think a huge weakness uh, that can exist in money managers is they have not really thought about that stuff because they haven't yet experienced it. And then when it happens, they have no tools to um, you know, manage resilience. And you look, when you're marketing or when you're talking with your buddies, it's, it's very cool to just kind of say, look, I'm tough and I'm just going to tough through it. Uh, that just doesn't work over time. As, and, and I think we can just say at the outset, let's, let's set that myth aside. So I think what, what you wanted to talk about today was just kind of um, the process of building resilience, how you actually incorporate that into a process and you know, actual techniques and methods about thinking about it and addressing those things and, and kind of practical steps um, you know, to make yourself more resilient and give yourself more of a chance to be able to invest over a long period of time because you can have a great return one year, another year, but the reality is with the mathematics of compounding, if you can compound it relatively mundane rate, but you can compound for 30 or 40 years, the numbers are just radically, radically higher than shorter tracker. Because this is a game of duration, yet that is a very undiscussed topic um, because people are focused in the short term. Um, and I've really tried to build how my firm operates and how I operate and how the network of people around me operate with a goal of having a 20 plus year track record. We made it seven, so a couple of years will be halfway there. Um, but that's really the plan from the outset. So we spent a lot of time working on this and studying this and seeking counsel on this and, and really monitoring how we're performing, particularly during times of stress, um, to see how we can improve and how we can, um, you know, really control risk uh, inside the firm, not just inside the process or inside the positions. Right. And, and I think it's interesting um, I was kind of trying to, to read up on the topic a little bit and I could find examples of, of people flaming, not flaming out, but ending their, their careers on a, on a low note, but then not a lot of discussion around why that is or how to prevent it, right? And so before we sort of get into the nitty gritty, I was just thinking like, okay, it's, it's, such a, it's a tricky topic because basically you said, okay, there's no such thing as just innate resilience. Um, but I think there is maybe an incentive or temptation to pretend, right, that you're innately resilient, especially when it relates to conversations with um, your LPs and your, your marketing and, and people kind of um, like I think it would benefit my, my 
one of the reasons why I want to have the conversation is I, I think it would benefit the culture greatly if there's more of a discussion around, um, I don't know if vulnerability is the, the right word, but kind of these these topics that are a little bit you're, you're, you're acknowledging that you're just, just human. And so I'm curious, um, you said that you kind of went out and, and got advice for that. Like, how did you how did you go about this? How did you like open these conversations? Who did you, not who specifically, but how did you go about like finding advice or like even even, you know, um, getting input and getting getting um, getting good ideas and, and good advice on this when it feels a little bit like, you know, opening the kimono on that and like asking that question it exposes you to to the question of like, wait a second, are you are you struggling? Are you too weak for the business? Like this this whole notion of like, wait, are you not resilient enough if you have to? Do you have to broach the topic? Sure. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the mind is designed to uh, hide certain things from you to, you know, if you were aware of all the gaps in your perception all the time, you'd probably lose your mind or kill yourself or something. It would be very, very bad if you had actual awareness of, you know, the gaps in timing between when you hear things and see things and things like that. There's a great book called The Intelligence Trap that talks about basically perception and um, risk-taking and, and why smart people do dumb things. And a lot of it has to do with our mind hiding things from us. And so there's both an element of our own minds deceiving ourselves with regards to weaknesses or blind spots. Uh, and also there's a bunch of social pressures that you say, you know, it's, it's not attractive uh, in most contexts to admit you have a potential weakness in a potential scenario. Problem is, if you can't at least identify or discuss those topics, you cannot even begin to think about how you might engineer solutions to them. And um, and really, over a long period of time, it's not about how you function most of the time. It's how you function in the 10-ish percent of time when things are really bad. And it's kind of the same thing in, in relationships and other areas of your life. You know, Most people are fine most of the time. Uh, the question is, how are they in, in, when things get bad? And, and, and there's weird inconsistencies in this. So for example, if you were to go into a first meeting with a manager or an allocator or somebody you don't know, and you were to say, hey, I have a tendency to freak out when the market is crashing, that's not going to be positive for the relationship of the conversation. On the other hand, if you are currently in a position of stress and you go to one of these people, and for me, it's mostly been other managers and some more experienced allocators, particularly allocators who used to select managers for trading platforms and things like that, where they had a lot more intimate relationship with the manager and they actually knew what was going on and slightly different than allocating funds. Um, they've seen that a lot and they've experienced it themselves. And there's some element of when you go to somebody with a, with a place of vulnerability, uh, they're a little bit more willing to open up to you because there's a preface for why you're having that conversation. Um, because when you have the conversation with no premise, then it's sort of like you bring up a downside to an investment case and they're like, whoa, there's a downside? We don't, we don't like downside. But if the downside is already happening, then people kind of begin from, all right, how do we get out of here? And it's just a way the brain frames things. And the classic one in investing is divorce. I mean, a lot of famous managers, Paul Titter Jones is probably the most famous for this, but a lot of managers have talked about how divorce wreaked havoc on their career. And so whenever anybody goes through a divorce, everybody feels very bad. And there's, there's usually a certain group of people that kind of, come together and talk about their struggles going through that. And, and people tend to, you know, certain people tend to help you out and some people tend to not help you out when you're going through a tough time. Um, but 
you know, so a lot of times you have to go through some of those periods in order to sort of unlock those conversations with other people, because I think it's, it's not that people don't want to impart that wisdom to you if you're a younger person. It's just that their brain blocks that information from them as well. They're not sitting there, especially if they're a successful investor, they are not sitting there thinking about the worst times of their life every day. It'd be very unhealthy for them to do that. There's a great book called How Champions Think by Dr. Bob Rutella that talks about, you know, the kind of be a goldfish concept from Ted Lasso. And he talks about how, you know, almost all of the great performers he ever seen almost literally don't remember uh, the hard times and the losses. And, and that's a superpower for them because they can perform with confidence. So when you get into those situations where adversity is present, um, all of a sudden people then can sort of tactically access that memory and you can have a conversation about it. And so it's weird, like it almost, you need to go into a bad time to get advice on a bad time. Um, for people that you have very good relationships with, you can have those conversations about what was that like? And they, you can have a little more off the record conversation. You're going to hear not just what they did, but how they felt about it, how scared they were, other things like that. You know, you'll hear a lot of managers say, Hey, I bought the market in financial crisis. But they're probably not going to get on TV and say, and I threw up in the trash can before it, you know. So, for example, during 2020, there's a friend of mine who's, a, you know, much more experienced. He's been in the business a long time. And uh, and he, he we, were, we were talking in the glade that afternoon. And I'm like, what do you think, man? I mean, this is crazy. And he goes, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And I was sitting at the desk. And I literally felt my stomach start to turn. And I was like, I'm going to vomit. and he had this awareness of that behavior in himself where he said, if I'm feeling that everyone else is feeling that it's time to buy. And if I remember correctly, he put half his account in small caps and half his account, in like gold miners or something. Like he put like two or three ETF trades on, put hundred percent of his account money and then shut his machine off and left the desk for the rest of the day. So um, that's not necessarily an advertisable process. That's not necessarily something I'd recommend, et cetera, but there are more experienced people who have learned to use one, they are aware that they have very strong emotional responses in these tough times, but they've actually learned to use those feelings as indicators of how everyone else might be feeling or, or what to do. And one of the things that I'm somewhat proud of is I've started to learn some of like the subtle emotional tells I have um, when, I'm, when I'm reacting to information. And they're very particular to each individual. I think you need a lot of reps before you can start to understand like, I had this really strong feeling and that probably means this because I've experienced this before and, and it really helps to have a journal and take notes and things like that. Um, so learning to use yourself as like an, as an emotional contrast is one of those techniques that people will kind of tell you about. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, you need to, uh, you need to build relationships where you can have these more candid conversations. Um, and, um, and, and everyone's had them. I mean, that's, that's the thing that's bizarre, right? Is if you were to go on Twitter or go to a panel or something, you know, everybody's an invincible Superman and you pull up their track record and you're like, wow, this guy's gotten hit straight in the face at least three or four times. And again, going back to Bob Rotella, you know, it's really good that they play like they've never been hurt. Um, um, you know, it's like a pop song. So you got to love like you've never been hurt before. You know, it's, it's, it is, it is like a very important thing that they do that, but and so it is nuanced how you have those conversations with people. But um, I've been through a few market drawdowns and, you know, building a fund has been hard. And I've had a lot of conversations with people where I've gone to them. I said, look, I'm struggling this right now. Like, have you ever experienced this? Like, what do you think? And people share things. We have these conversations. And I'll be very respectful of, of those conversations. Um, 
but you know, everyone's been through this. Everyone who's been in the market over maybe 10 years has, has had a really hard time and, and not just in uh, profit and loss swings. I mean, they've had, they've had crazy things go wrong. If you've been around, if you talk to somebody who's worked in this industry for more than 20 years, um, my favorite thing to do is hear war stories. So a lot of times that, you know, I'll try to I'll meet somebody at an event or something. And I go, Hey, you know, I know you were, I, I know you were around Amaranth like way back when, like, can I buy you a beer? I just want to hear what that was like. Cause that was, I've read the stories and I, you know, but what was it actually like? And you know, what were the people like? And it's always more nuanced than the, than the papers would say. Um, and I, 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 I love, I love those stories. I collect those stories, you know, religiously. It's, it's just, I love the, the lore of the market. Um, but you can also just hear how people reacted, what was going on. And, and there's crazy personal circumstances behind a lot of these things. A lot of times when the market's crashing, people are also getting divorced. People's kids are having behavioral problems at school. Um, all these other things are happening. And, um, and what happens there is that the way the firm and the portfolio manager and everybody around the ecosystem, the LPs, et cetera, the way everybody was interacting and acting within themselves and acting with other people, all of a sudden stops working. And that's when really bad things happen is, you know, there's like a great line that I think is, I think Eisenhower attributed it to Napoleon. I'm not sure if there's an original quote, but it's, you know, a great general is the man who can do the average thing when everyone else is losing their heads. And that's really what it is. It's, it's these, these periods of extreme stress that come along where a lot of things you take for granted on a given day stop working and the decision-making ability of the firm, not the quality, the ability to make decisions collapses. And so I think it's really important to think about how you as an individual investor or portfolio manager or analyst, whatever your role is, how you can buffer your own abilities during periods of adversity, um, as well as how you can structure your firm and your team and your stakeholders um, during those periods. Um, and there's a lot of things you see from, you know, when you go through a period of stress, you have, you can see public companies that communicate much better with stakeholders during market volatility than others. Um, and so there's a lot of things you see that are definitely bad behaviors. And so those are easier to spot and go, okay, those are things we don't want to be doing. And then, you know, more interestingly, there are, there are certain behaviors which I think are, are beneficial and those are, you know, a little bit harder to find because often they're pseudoscientific. They sound a little wacky, you know, one of them that like, you'd be surprised how many money managers, if you get them private and ask them, like, how do you get through like hard times? They'll be like, I sit in a sauna for 45 minutes and just sweat. And then I get into an ice bath and, you know, like, it's a little bit like kind of woo woo. And I don't think anybody wants to like say that's their like secret sauce or something like that. But there are like things you can do. And a lot of them are related to physical health because what you're ultimately having happen is you're having hormone shifts in your brain and your body that are working against you. And so you need to address a physical problem on a physical basis. And nobody wants to admit that a physical problem could inhibit a firm because a firm is supposed to have process and procedure and all of these things. But the issue is when everybody in the firm is facing these same stresses at the same time, uh, all of a sudden you have individual capacity decline and simultaneously you start to have more uh, committee effects where people start making lowest common denominator decisions and people start looking for plausible deniability or they start looking for cover for their decisions. So when you have individuals having problems at the same time, you tend to have the organization start to structurally uh, make worse decisions then. Um, so I just think this whole topic of how you build resilience is, is really, really important and something you need to consider. And, and I just generally think you don't want to operate with the assumption that you are going to always be able to play your best game. 
And, you know, it's great. You can look at like a Michael Jordan playing the flu game and that's awesome. And it's like a great story. You can't bank on that. That's not an intelligent way to build a process. That's so interesting. So I, I was coming at it more thinking about the individual, right? Like the portfolio manager, what have you. And something that you mentioned in previous conversation that also is coming through now, right? Sort of this confluence of factors of like there's volatility, like I have to worry about the portfolio, then maybe there's something going on in my personal life. I'm having like, you know, there, there's all kinds of, and, and like I have to worry about the business, the cash flow, uh, my LPs, uh, maybe health things. And you sort of added the, the dimension of like, okay, there's this entire construct around you of the firm, the team, how everybody works together everybody else is also experiencing that stress may never have the team may never have had an experience of going through something stressful together right they're like sort of um, not not veterans yet so and it strikes me that you're, you're sort of emphasizing like okay you want to put in place systems or habits before that happens to the extent that you can um, so so how do you think about kind of these these different dimensions and like specific things that you do and maybe the objection I mean, something that comes to my mind is always like, okay, people are like, they'll, they'll argue like, how do I spend my time, right? Like I can only spend so much time. I got to market, I got to pick stocks, I got to um, deal with a million business issues. So like now I got to like do this whole thing, like sauna, yoga, whatever, like I don't have time for this. Um, like, how do you think about the importance and the weight of it? And also maybe the, just the, the different dimensions where you, um, where you think it's really important and, and you make changes or decisions. Based yeah. On so a common issue when you're thinking about constructing a system like a firm is that people don't notice how many parts of that logic they assume. So for example, a lot of people assume that you want to handle all of your, especially amateur investors or younger investors, analysts, they assume you want to handle all of your risk in, at the stock specific research level. And in fact, you can handle a lot of different types of risk at the portfolio level. So for example, if you have a portfolio that on average is like a 14 PE portfolio, and let's say the market's at 19, and your concern is, okay, we like these businesses, they're cheap, but what if the multiple of the market declines? Well, if the actual risk of the long portfolio you've constructed is that the absolute multiple declines, and you're dealing with a multiple that is you know, uh, reasonable and, and the portfolio is somewhat stable in the relationship to the market multiple, you gotta, there's some caveats there. But if that's the case, you can actually price and look at hedging the absolute multiple risk. That's actually a fairly simple thing to hedge. Now, if you're dealing with a highly idiosyncratic security uh, or something like that, it may be very expensive or impossible to actually hedge it on a portfolio level. Uh, and maybe you could diversify it out or something like that. But uh, it may be more important to do single name stuff. But you have to be able to zoom in and out of your process and understand, okay, what are we doing at this level we're doing here? And the sequence with which you make decisions is very important. And, um, and so, you know, when you think about all these things you need to do, um, it's a multi-iterative process because as you dial one thing up or down, it's going to affect everything else you're doing. And what you need to observe is how those other things change and you tend to find, you know, in most, most applications of mathematics to finance have found basically what I would call elegant solutions where they're like, wait a minute, if we fix this, it actually has this domino effect and it solves all these other problems. And usually what happens is a quant says, hey, if you do this, it does all this, it does this. And then the fundamental guy is, yeah, but, 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 but what about if this happens? The obvious caveat. And so with everything I'm saying, obvious caveats apply. Yes, there's maybe some way this fails, but it's not an excuse for not thinking about it. So 
I, I operate on what I call the yes principle, which I think at like the end of your life or at the end of your day, really, we don't need to get morbid about it. At the end of your day, your day is a series of things you said yes to. I said yes to getting on this uh, call. I said yes to reading an email earlier. I said yes to responding to that email earlier. I said yes, this, this. I, the things I'm saying no to, I, I'm not, they don't really exist uh, from a certain perspective. It's just the things that I'm saying yes to passively or actively. And so I think you have to begin with looking at what are the things you want to be accomplishing and you want to be doing. And one of the things that happens throughout most of life, but especially during periods of stress, is you end up burning a lot of your time basically in consideration and you burn a lot of, you create a lot of stress thinking about, do I want to do this or this? Do I, do I want to, you know, you're thinking about that optimization problem and you see people start to accomplish nothing because they're worried about optimizing. Like great is the enemy of good so often um, in, in, uh, in running a business where people are so worried about edge case scenarios that they end up with a bad outcome. So you've got to kind of get past that and look at what are the anchor things that you're looking to accomplish. And so, you know, if you're running a money management business, uh, the anchor probably should be having the portfolio not blow up. That should probably be your anchor, right? Um, and you should probably be focused on making money, a suggestion, after, after not losing money. Um, and, um, and then you need to look at how you do that. So how's the team functioning? How's everybody relating? Like, is, what is the process that goes into that? So you need to control those three things. Those are the things you're saying yes to. And then you need to communicate with your stakeholders outside the firm. And then you've got, you know, other, you can kind of lay the priorities out, right? And what you need to think about is how you control how those different pieces relate to one another. So for example, um, if your LPs expect hour and a half long Zooms to walk through the portfolio during a drawdown, you've just created a material constraint in your ability to do everything else. And so you may need to have conversations with your LPs in advance explaining how you're going to be responding to periods of stress and how you're positioned so that they are not surprised and so that you can give one team member the assignment of just simply sending quick updates to everybody saying, hey, we're not dead and we're going to go focus on the process. We're going to let you know in a period of time uh, or whatever you want to do. Um, but it's not good if the, the entire firm all of a sudden needs to create documents to show the LPs to verify that they're not, that they're not dead because then you're not actually focusing on the investment process, you're not focusing on the portfolio, right? So you need to think about, the way we think about it is a lot of these things, when things go wrong, you're short of put on your own time. So there are certain types of investments where if something goes wrong or the thing is down, you go, okay, maybe I need to spend an hour rechecking something or maybe it's a buying opportunity or something like that. But there's other things where if, if it, wait, you wake up and it's down 20% or something, it probably means something really serious has changed. And so the one, you've lost like 20% or whatever the number is. But the other thing is you may have to go have an analyst or yourself or whatever. You may have to go spend tens or hundreds of hours re-underwriting whatever, but you're going to have to do that at a time of stress, at a point when, when the forward returns of everything else are going up. And so when you price not just the downside and the downside state, but also the time that you have to commit at that point in time and when you have to commit it, similar to put and also what the opportunity set probably looks like in that scenario, it can change which opportunities you are attracted to. And so that's something we factor in a lot. We've said no to a lot of opportunities where I'm like, look, I, it's not that I think that things going to lose money. It's just that the actual, the practical reality, the downside of having this at a position size that would move the needle for our fund doesn't make any sense. Um, 
So you need to think about that type of stuff within the, within the investment process. And then there's the personal stuff where, especially under stress, everybody, you get very obsessed with, well, we need to continue to do all the things we're normally doing. But if you, if you think about it like athletes, if you have a bunch of athletes training for a game on Saturday and it's just very clear that they're all uh, way overtired, their muscles are sore, like they're, they're, they're messed up, they're just tired, but a long season, um, you may be hurting yourself by attempting to do the full training. You may want to just say, look, guys, we're going to do 30 minutes of yoga, go sit in a sauna or something, stretch out, and then go home and sleep and come back. And we're, you know, we're going to train two days this week and the rest we're going to do just recovery stuff. And we're going to try to be fresh for the game on Saturday. And so you need to be thinking about under the position of stress, do you want your, do you want your investment team running the exact same investment process or do you want to simplify it? And so one of the things we try to do is at the portfolio level, we want to ensure that in times of stress, the portfolio structure is simpler and that the liquidity is higher, which are two, two constraints for imposing ourselves on ourselves in normal times that benefit us in stressful times. But also in the investment process, we actually have a dashboard that shows the entire investment process as a manufacturing process. And I can click one button and it will make 75% of the projects disappear because they're not relevant when the market's crashing. I want you to focus on, these are the things I want you to focus on. And um, I want to focus on things we already know a ton about. I don't want somebody in the middle of a crisis going and looking at something new. I don't want somebody trying to come up with a hero trade to win back some loss on some position. I don't want any of those biases entering the process. I want to be very thoughtful about if we wake up tomorrow and something happened and the market's off 10, 15, 20%, you know, whatever it is, where do I actually want my team to be? And I need to engineer that in now, not well, you know, once it's already happening. It's really hard because once it starts already happening, it's really hard to change behavior because you always want to bounce to get out of something or you always want a dip to buy. It's really hard to engineer these processes in once a bear market begins or once something happens. So you need to build that in in advance. And so for me, it's all about making sure the portfolio, the portfolio, it's liquid and it's uh, simple. So we're not going to sit there. I don't want I don't want people running around and chasing a bunch of random two, three, four percent positions in small caps when the macro is going nuts. It's just not going to be a productive use of anybody's time. And when and also when those stocks recover, they're not going to recover on stock specific stuff. They're going to recover on headline issues. Um, I also want to make sure that in the investment process that we really trim down to having people do things that they're already very skilled at, that they can almost, you know, in, in, in the military and athletics, you want to get you want to get most movements down to where people can do them without thinking. And so it's the same thing really here with investing is I want to give people more time to sleep, more time to to have good meals, to like feel physically comfortable and i want them to do things that they're very practiced at under times of stress and i'm and i'm really expecting like i'd like better obviously but i'm expecting c plus to maybe a minus work i'm not expecting a, a plus work when people are getting shelled and i'm going to factor that into everything else that we're doing and so i'm going to have more of a more of a, a lean towards um things that i think are you know six inch putts and um, and again, it, that's none of that is designed to be a return maximizing opportunity. It's 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 designed to ensure that we don't lose money, and that we can make some money. And but the more important point is that as the stress starts to come off, when things start to stabilize, I need my team to be very ready to perform when it's time to really go again. Because what what often happens is through the stress period, you burn yourself out trying to just will through it. 
And I, a lot of people are really, really tough, but everybody's tough until they're not tough. Like you, you just, you're done at a point. We're all human. And so you can really gut it for, you know, weeks, maybe months, but you're going to be torched. And so, you, you know, it's not just about that one month period. You need to really make sure that you're operating in a way that's actually going to be sustainable. So, you know, we force people to, you know, at, at certain points when we see people burning out, whether it's a, a hard time or, or an easy time, we just see people start to, the performance is sort of lagging a bit. And it's not, you know, that they're dumb. It's just that the, we're seeing evidence of them getting tired. Um, we force people to take vacations. And, um, and again, we build into the process, okay, we're going to probably kick some people out of the office. And that's something that Commodities Corp did. I mean, Commodities Corp, you know, the one they talk about is if you lost money, they would basically say, go take a vacation for a week or two, come back, write a memo, explain what happened, and we'll evaluate and go forward from there. And, but we build all that in. So you're beginning with this process of yes, what are the things that are absolutely yes? Then you're going to, how do I compensate for those things? And then you loop that several times until you find kind of an equilibrium. And then you're always trying to improve the equilibrium. Like that's, that's, that's the, that is the process of being an investor or running an investment firm is trying to improve that equilibrium. Um, but if you can build an equilibrium that where it's very, very hard to blow up or fail, um, your long-term expectancy goes through the roof. And it's, it's very simple gambling mathematics. If you get to keep rolling and you don't run out of your bankroll, your expectancy is really, really good over time. And so it's very psychologically hard to admit, okay, we're going to basically stop shooting for home runs maybe uh or stop swinging for home runs uh in these times of stress because we we all would love to be the hero that's on the cover of blah 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 but it doesn't really work out that way um and on the other hand you know we found that um the things that really make you a ton of money tend to be fairly obvious because the issue is a lot of times the stuff that moves a lot in a percentage basis you can't actually get a big position on you, know, you can't move around nearly as quickly. Like there's big caveats to a lot of the hero moves people see on Twitter and things like that. I would much rather find things where I'm very certain I can't lose money on and put a real size position on and have it make 30% a year for my investors for the next five years. That's going to make everyone a lot more money. And it's also a lot less psychologically dangerous to the team because nobody's going to buy a bankrupt commodity company and then a week later be up 25X and say, I'm you know a king. Like we do you know, none of that. So we're, we're trying to just, Again, build a sustainable kind of long-term way that the firm is working, that the individuals are working, and that, that comes down to what people are working on, what a clear alignment of what the goals are, what the expectations are, and having discussions about, look, we're down, we're, we're taking your, our expectations for you are now lower. And so you relax, and, you know, and I want you to leave the office at six, and I want you to go get a, get a big dinner. Uh, go get a big pole pasta or whatever it is, whatever your thing, your happy place is. And I want you to go sleep for 12 hours. And then I want you to come back and I don't want you to check market prices. And I don't want you to look at futures over the night. I want you to unplug, reset, have a, you know, have a great weekend with your girlfriend, whatever it is. And, and then I want you to come back in fresh. And then I want to talk about what makes sense. And I don't want to, I don't want to talk about what scares you. I want to talk about these other things. Like, let's keep that in line. And again, there are obvious caveats to all of this, but as an overall system, this stuff really does work. And I know very few people who, you know, and also I would note, like, just it is, it is I put this in the obvious caveat bucket, but um, 
you know, it's not going to be everybody. There's going to be one person who just clearly needs a day or needs a weekend, right? And there's going to be somebody else who's chomping at the bit, like, put me in, coach, let's go. And that's great. And you, and you should lean into that. You know, some firms, I think, try to, you know, use that as an evidence that the guy who's saying, put me in, is better than the other guy. And I'm like, no, there's a million other variables. You have no idea. Um, you know, no, because the guy who's saying, put me in, coach, two weeks from then is going to be useless. And the guy who's maybe useless right now, uh, is probably going to be pretty fresh in two weeks. And so, you know, again, it's a, think about it like a team, like a sports team. We need to have players who can execute plays at all times. And in order to have people who can execute plays at all times, some people have to have some Gatorade on the bench and let's just accept that and engineer around it. And I think a lot of firms have internalized myths about whatever, and have just not accepted basic rules of any competitive game. And I, and I would note, Everything I'm saying is is pretty rudimentary in military theory and sports theory and other, but it's kind of alone in portfolio management asset management, where people still think that you know they're the Spartans in the 300 movie where they can just fight 24 seven, which is not how that went down for the record. <laughs> well, I, I think it's funny um, because I was as as you were saying all these things, I was like I was nodding along, but I was also thinking I know examples of where it's sort of the opposite, right? And like you're talking about people getting shelled, right? Like there's volatility and then there's volatility in your portfolio and now it's time to, for the fire drills and everybody's got to be there all night. You got to redo the models, got to, you know, um, and and sort of the the pressure that, that that's created um, leads to this sort of the, the culture that's a grind on a normal day, it becomes an exponential grind. And I think you sort of have this back, I mean, you have a background as an athlete, so I feel like, and, and obviously you studied it, but I feel like you have this perspective on it that's a little bit more uh, multidisciplinary, right? And that sort of can, because it is hard if this is a topic that's less talked about in investing, right? You sort of have to reach um, outside the field for, for good examples. And in your letters, you, you reference coaches and culture and in other organizations. And I feel like there's, and, and I've heard you talk about um, distance and, and grappling and like, metaphors that you basically bring into investing that help you sort of understand why this is important and why it actually you know why it's substantiated right why it's not something i'm not just telling you you need some time away from the desk i'm doing this and i have examples in in other competitive games right and, and i feel like that's um all of the, at least when when i hear from you it, it really helps me understand that because like you look at and another your immediate inclination, maybe you look at another investment firm and like, oh, they do it like that, so it must be right. But you could be like, well, I could look at an NFL team or a bat, you know, I can look at examples um, that deal sort of with, with very similar issues um, where, I can, where I can learn. So I'd, I'd love if you could just ex expand on, on, on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think um, um, yeah. one of the classic examples is if you look at BUDS, which is the training for SEALs, which is one of the most brutal things that happens in military training it essentially is the SEAL Corp trying to break you mentally and physically for an extended period of time. Uh, and, you know, I'm fascinated by people who've made it through it. And I actually know some people who've done it. And a lot of people are mentally tough enough to get through it, but their leg breaks or their kidney fails or things like that. And like a, a non-trivial percentage of these people, their bodies literally can't handle bugs. And so I've asked some of the people who, who've made it through buds and I've heard people make the same remark. I'm like, how do you get through a thing where you're watching a guy next to you's leg break from overuse? Or you watch somebody's kidney fail and they go, you know, 
as as crazy as this thing is, as much as they're just deliberately trying to break you, they have to feed you. And they go, look, I know every X hours they have to give us food because it literally doesn't matter how tough or how whatever you are. If you're if you run out of blood sugar, you're out of batteries, the machine's shutting down. And so even in the most harsh military environment in the training context that I'm aware of, maybe probably they're worse, but that's the one that's famous. Uh, the constraint that everyone leans on is the human reality of needing food. And I think that's a powerful lesson in, in, in really everything is that there are bedrock realities that you just have to admit and work around. And I think a lot of people don't want to do that. Um, taking a completely different perspective on it. One of the things I've, I've talked to you about is when I study really great investors, uh, people who have uh, outsized track records of 20 or 30 or 40 years plus, um, there is a habit of, I'd be slightly hyperbolic to call it laziness, but I think about it as a certain sort of tactical laziness. And it's really more an economy, uh, an economy of motion where a lot of them have this ability to sort of calmly sit and observe and not expend very much energy for long periods of time and then strike very aggressively uh, at a certain point in time. And it's not that they're doing nothing during the observation periods. They're just slowly accumulating information and observations and they're gaming things out in their head, but really, really low sort of metabolic clip. And it reminds me a lot of looking at any real large, physically large predator in the animal kingdom, they all like just don't move for a lot of time. They just kind of sit there and, you know, are hanging out in the sun. And it takes a lot of calories to move a 400 pound muscle machine that's designed for murder. Uh, and so they really can't afford to move around. They just have to sit there and look, and then they'll see something that looks like a lot of calories to them. And then they become these like horrifying murder monsters for 30 seconds to a minute, and then they eat all the calories they're going to get for three weeks. And it's a, it's a kind of natural lesson again there. Um, and I look at a lot of, um, you know, a lot of these like people who are in competitive environments. So I, I was also reading about some um, Olympic training center stuff and the Olympic training centers made some great advancements in, in how athletes train. And one of the things they were discussing was that for a lot of Olympians now, they're really only doing one or two days a week of full out training. Um, and um, the reason is, I mean, look, these are Olympic athletes. They're already in incredible shape. And, um, and there's a similar thing with professional fighters who are preparing for a fight. When you go into your training camp, you want to already be in shape. When you go into the Olympic training center, you want to already be in shape. Then you're looking at fine tuning things, making sure you peak at the right time. You're not showing up to train for the Olympics with a gut. Like it's just, that's not how that works. And there needs to be a similar bar at an investment firm. If like you need to be at a certain level already, and then there needs to be an understanding that you're performing at that level and that's, that's the bar to be at the firm, right? And once you're accepting that as the floor and understanding how you're optimizing behavior essentially for high performers, it's a different thing, right? So we're not talking about first-year bankers who need to learn how to model or do PowerPoint, right? We're not talking to people who need to, we want people to continue to learn and get better, but we're not talking to people who still need to figure out what the hell they're doing. And I would note that a crisis is not a time to have somebody who needs to know what the hell they're doing, right? That's not what we're talking about. 
um, what we're talking about is people who already are, are at, a, at a fairly high degree of skill and are improving. And we're talking about how to make sure that they have the maximum output and maximum increase of skill over a multi-year, ideally multi-decade period. My bar for you know, people we kind of work with and the people we're bringing onto the firm in your future is I really only want to have people who I believe will be great investors in their own right, regardless of my interaction with their life. I hope I can help them get better, but that's the way I think about it. And I think if that's the bar, you can operate with a different level of trust and a different type of interaction with team members. Um, because you can think about it more like a coaching role where you can look at, you're really, you're trying to figure out how to improve everybody and you need to push everybody a certain amount, but not too much. And you need to let people have recovery time. And you, and you need to also include them on this type of thinking about how the whole system works. And I think, you know, I don't know how accurate it was, but one of my favorite scenes in the Moneyball movie is when Billy Bean kind of realizes that he needs to explain what the hell he's doing to the players. Because before that, he's this kind of rude alien who just doesn't seem to care about them at all. And then he finally starts explaining them, this is what we're doing. This is, this is how the game actually works. It's not about how hard you get the ball. It's not about this. It's about these things and having clarity of vision and clarity of goals. And a lot of investment firms, you think the goal will be very clear. But it's not. Most of these firms are really don't. And it comes back to, you know, I'm recently rereading The Money Game by Adam Smith, which is an all-time classic. And they talk about people want different things out of the market. And other people would say that, you know, people get what they want out of the market. And I do think that there is a lot of that in money management. There are a lot of firms that do they want to put up the best investment track record? Not really. What they actually want is they want to own the best growth businesses in the world and be known as, you know, friends with all the CEOs and, it's really sexy. They're at all the Silicon Valley events and they've identified the last 10, um, you know, big tech companies. And sometimes that generates outsized returns. Um, but the goal is that the goal is not absolute, absolute returns. And as they start to internalize and people don't realize when they make that distinction, but it starts to happen and it becomes ingrained in the culture. And also the, the LPs start to expect that as well. But then when things go sour, the LPs go, wait a minute, we actually care about returns. Um, so there's a danger there and not having extreme clarity about what it is you actually care about. And I, I, I make it very simple. We're here to make money. Like, I don't care if it's in tech or if it's in consumer. Like, I don't care if it's a great company. Like, I love great companies. I'd love to learn about a great company. But like, if you open a pitch to me with it's a great company, I'm going to ask you to leave my office and come back when you have an actual pitch for a stock. Because that is not a pitch for a stock. Nor is it's down X percent. Um, you know, we need to have an actual reason about the economic value of the business, how it's growing over time. And we can include, you know, returns to scale and network effects and all these, you know, all that, all this stuff plays, right? I'm not saying you have to just come in and tell me you got cash flows, but we need to, you need to define things. And so a lot of it comes down to on the process side, having a very clear idea of what the goal is, how you define that, how you communicate ideas. Um, and kind of what the rules are, because everybody in the firms, whether they realize it or not, is going to try to hack everything else in the firm. Everybody's going to try to hack their compensation. They're going to try to hack their PM. They're only going to show their PM the ideas that the PM's going to go for. So you have to think about how to gamify that type of stuff. Um, and you and you need to think about how that's going to change under under stress. And so we just think a lot about thinking about uh, a team and who we're, who we're dealing with as you know, high level athletes, essentially, we want everybody to already be very good, we want them to be getting better. And um, we understand that there are limits to people, and we're not going to operate under the guise of myths, because they're useful for a marketing reason or for whatever. Um, and we're going to really try to dial in everything around the process around that. And 
um, a lot of it is physical. Um, some of the, you know, a lot of it is about, you know, things like your diet, uh, exercise, your sleep. Sleep is huge. Um, you know, one of the things that happens sometimes to day traders and prop traders is they, they can't sleep because they're having adrenal burnout from the stress of trading all day. And that's just absolutely horrible for your performance. And so you need to monitor those things and you need to monitor them without judging them. And then you need to look at, okay, first let's, you know, let's do triage. You go home, you sleep, you eat, you know, and very important that you not threaten anybody's role with anything that you're doing this. And then later you can go and you can look at how we're going to prevent that from happening. And usually it's just earlier response. And, you know, instead of taking from somebody from a hundred to zero one day, you say a week earlier, you go, ah, you know, this guy's looking a little, look, we're moving a little slow. Let's take him to 80%. And, um, you know, and that can, that, can, that can matter a lot, but it can't just be a top-down impulsiveness from the PM, you know, basically, you know, rule by shouting at a lot of firms. Um, but when you start to actually, you know, loop this process and look at how these things re relate, you realize it is very positive expectancy to do this stuff. Um, again, obvious caveats apply to all of this, but the expectancy is tremendous and it is a serious edge. And part of why there is an edge here that I think is sustainable is that to do this stuff, you're going to have to do a lot of things that other people are going to talk trash about you for. They're going to say, well, my team was in all weekend remodeling this thing and I was like, okay we'll get the next one i'm not saying i'm gonna beat you on that one that's not the game we're playing because again the game we're playing it's like poker if you're a serious professional poker player it's not about an individual hand it's about thousands of hands and yet it's so uh attempting to become obsessed with an individual hand in this business and that's really the core uh behavior element we're trying to avoid because especially when you're when you're stressed and you're tired you're not going to be able to play individual hands as well as you'd like. And you know what the best move is to go take a nap and come back later and go to a different table. Uh, you had a few bad beats at a table. I mean, I used to live in Vegas and I played cards, you know, there professionally for a while. And, um, you know, when you're getting, when you have a couple bad beats and you're just pissed off about it and you're tired and, you know, you want to beat that guy because he's gotten two crazy bad beats on your row. You know, the younger man says, I'm going to take that guy's head off. And the more experienced player uh, says, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go top on the stationary bike for 20 minutes. And then I'm going to go take a nap. And then I'm going to have a nice salad. And then I'm going to go to a different casino and sit down at a table in there. And then I'm going to play there against completely different people. And you have to lose the pride of wanting to beat that guy. And you have to let go of the anger of what happened. And you have to forgive yourself. And you, have to, you, have to have a, you have to be like a goldfish. But this is all about evolving That's process. Back to Ted Lasso. It's, it always comes back to Ted Lasso, man. <laughs> um, I'm glad I uh, I watched that show after you started talking about it. Um, and it strikes me there's this quote from Drucker Miller where he said like one of the key things um, he felt he always had to do is like understand whether he was hot or cold, right? Whether he was on a streak or not, speaking up the tables. And I always kind of looked at that and was like, I don't know, like there are no streaks, you know, like what is he talking about? And now it strikes me that maybe he was really talking about other than having a feel for the market, also like understanding himself and like, am I right now in a, in like a good state where I'm like making good decisions? Like, um, and does that, um, come out in in the hands that i'm playing right or do i like if i'm having a bad streak i'm making the bad decisions right like that's kind of the symptom of okay maybe you need to get some distance to the game and like um 
you know, let, let things settle down a bit. And, and ultimately, I mean, I'm writing about this right now, but I think he's one of the, um, he, he's unfortunately a, a, an example of where sort of towards the end of his career, it was kind of in that place where he felt like he had to make a move and was just sort of didn't have that distance. Um, and, uh, and that didn't work out. I wanted to just sort of ask you to, to close out um, whether you think sort of the specific behaviors, whether it's, you know, like Ray Dalio talking about meditation, other people go surfing or sauna, working out, like there's a million different things one could do. Do you think these are, do you think about all of this as sort of a very specific and idiosyncratic system you're building around 1 p.m. and his team? Or are there like universal principles? And like, where would somebody go to like find the best practices, whether it's books or is it just like building a ton of relationships? Like maybe you're really good at that, but you know, I'm not as good as at building relationships. I'm, maybe I'm wondering like, okay, how do I balance? Like, where do I get the right information for this? And how do I figure out what's right for me? Is this just experimenting? Sorry, this yeah. was like a rant of, of a question. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, I, I break all this stuff down into kind of three categories. Uh, ritual, rhythm, and distance. Um, and this is all kind of my vocabulary for it. So the rituals are the specific actions you take that, are, that can be individual. They can also be firm-based. And other people, have, there's a lot of stuff from like Josh Waitzkin to reading about Bill Belichick or Bill Walsh, a lot of coaches, things where people talk about team rituals. And I think Bill, uh, Bill Walsh's, uh, the score takes care of itself. It's incredible on team rituals and instantiating culture and things like that. Um, that's a good good resource there. I think the individual ones, uh, it's hard because a lot of stuff that I think is good is mixed up in bro science stuff that I wouldn't necessarily recommend. Um, I would say that the the reality, the stuff that I think is universal on an individual basis, like you can put your own stylistic paint job on, you know, any of this, right? But there are a few like guiding principles. And so one, and most of them are very basic and you could ask pretty much any doctor and they'd be like, yeah. So one is like, not sleeping is bad. Big mind blower there. But not sleeping and not sleeping well is a big, big problem, uh, especially when you're doing um, really kind of intense mental work and you're making judgment calls. Uh, lack of sleep over time, especially over time. And I note, like, you can obviously go a day without sleep or you can go a day with bad food or whatever. But months on end of bad sleep, bad food, no exercise, all this other stuff will 100% of the time destroy your ability to make high quality decisions like zero period end of story it's universal you know no disrespect to anybody so sleep is huge the second one is is your diet you know you, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a specific thing but like massive insulin volatility uh is really really hard on your body uh a lot of alcohol is really really hard on your body um you know sugar alcohol huge insulin swings, overeating, binge eating, not eating, forgetting to eat. Those are all very serious things in terms of how your brain's going to function. Uh, there's a lot of people on, on, uh, on Adderall on Wall Street and, you know, they're not eating and, you know, you're not making as good decisions as your, uh, you know, uh, brain thinks it is um, on those medications. Um, so I think you need, to, you need to get your diet to like just some regular level. It doesn't need to be, you know, perfect or great or anything. It doesn't need to be good really even. It just needs to not be terrible, but it's very easy, especially in financial centers, to have a truly horrible uh, diet. Uh, and that's, that's big. So sleep and diet right there are, are just two huge things. And, and the alcohol and the sugar and eating late at night, the big dinners late at night are terrible for your sleep. They feed into each other. The third thing is, is, is exercise. and you know, I, I, 
I bring up exercise, like you can have whatever exercise ritual you want, um, but there is a very significant mental health impact to elevating your heart rate somewhat for at least, you know, 20 minutes or so, something like that. You don't need to go power lift or something like that. I, mean, I, I really like lifting it. Make, I find that for me personally, lifting heavy weights makes me feel much better. It's what I call a keystone behavior. I always look for behaviors where if I do this one thing, the probability of my other behaviors being good increases. So if I lift heavy weights, like even if I go in for 20 minutes, I just do really heavy deadlift. I sleep much better. Um, I feel much better just walking around. Um, you know, it improves my hormones and things like that, according to my blood tests. Um, it makes me want to eat healthier things. I may, maybe want to eat more, but I don't, I don't go lift weights and then want to go eat, you know, a funnel cake or something. I don't know why I thought of that, but I thought the least healthy thing I could. I want to go eat like a steak or chicken or something like that. Like I want to eat meat, vegetable, carbs, something like that. Right. And so, and you know, so I'm going to go eat a pretty healthy thing. I'm pretty tired. So I'm probably not going to go out after doing that. Uh, I don't really go out much, but you know, and then I go to sleep and I wake up and I feel much better the next day. And then also with me with lifting is if I'm in a pattern of lifting and I don't lift, I feel bad. So it's kind of addictive in a, in a good way there. Um, so if you can find something like that, that kind of is a keystone behavior that sort of holds all the other good behaviors in place, that's really, really powerful. And I think exercise is good and specifically anything that's elevating your heart rate for a period of time, especially when you're very stressed. And I think if you've been in markets, you've been in PMC, you've felt the, as, uh, Matthew McConaughey put it in, um, in Wolf of Wall Street, the above the neck mustard shit, where it just, you're sitting in a desk and nothing's happening to you and you feel your entire body's like feels compressed and tense and it's almost like a heat throughout your body where you just feel very uncomfortable and nothing's happened. And it's just this stress building up of your brain responding to all these stimuli. And the only way I found to just short circuit that is to go, you know, just hop on an elliptical or whatever and just get your heart rate up to, I don't know, 130, 150, whatever your level is for your age and health and whatnot, uh, you know, for 15 or 20 minutes. And it is amazing. Like there'll be, you'll, you, you put on some music you like, you just hit the return, put on an audiobook, whatever. 20 minutes and your emotional state will completely reset. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a superpower. It's one of the only ways. And then that's going to allow you to sleep better. That's going to allow you to not go home and piss off or stress off, stressed out when you talk to your family and things like that. Uh, it's another keystone behavior that kind of like, it helps your social life. It helps how you're interacting with your team members. Like if you're really stressed out and before you go into the office, you do, you know, 20, 30 minutes of cardio, uh, for me at least, and for most people I know have done this, like the probability of you going into the office and being a jerk to your team members, which can damage the process, declines because you're coming in feeling good. And I mean, ultimately, you want your team members feeling good every day. You want them, again, like athletes, you want them feeling good every day. You want them in a, you know, hot or cold. I think about it more like flow state. When people are feeling good and there's, and there's a rhythm, so that's the second thing. And the rhythm is how all these things are mi mixing together. And you should be able to notice, like we track every project, everybody's working on what people are doing. And you can kind of see when things are humming, like everybody's feeling good. Everybody's got a couple of things they're excited about, got calls that, you know, everybody's just kind of working. And, and, and one of the things we notice when that's happening is there's a certain level of communication, but it's not peak communication. People are sort of like in the zone doing their thing. And we, we have prescribed times we meet and circle up, but um, there's just a rhythm to how all of that stuff is working. What you notice when you have a significant market drawdown or some other problem is you'll notice the rhythm of the firm 
become disrupted. And so we can see that in, you know, you can see that in email traffic, you can see it in like the, 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 the messages people are sending around, you can see it in how people are posting updates on their ideas, things like that. Like you can, and you can also just feel it. Like, and the other thing is, as a leader of a firm, if you're not in a good place, your ability to sort of feel the force in your own firm is diminished. Like if you're so in your head and so stressed out, your ability, your EQ declines, your IQ and your EQ are declining. I think a lot of people have talked about IQ declining under stress, but your EQ also declines and you're not feeling or understanding what other people are feeling. And so your ability to understand how you need to kind of toggle uh, team members goes down. So the second is, is really just monitoring that rhythm around the entire process, your, your life, the firm's process and the lives of your team members, right? And you need to be aware you don't want to be overly intrusive into people's lives. You're not a police state or anything like that, but it's good to know, like, look, if somebody's having something that's bothering, like a family member's sick or something like that, through COVID, a lot of people had a lot of personal stuff and you need to know if somebody's having a hard time so you can compensate for that at a higher level, right? And you're aware of that in the rhythm and you can maintain what you can. So that's really important. And, and then the third thing is distance. And so there's this concept in grappling or boxing or any like martial arts uh, of distance. And so when you, the classic example is if you look at like a mixed martial arts or even in boxing, when two fighters lock up and they're basically hugging each other, it looks kind of silly if you've never done it. You're like, why are they hugging each other? Well, one, you can kind of get a breath and not get punched in the face, which is nice. But two, when you really start clenching and somebody else has to all of a sudden respond to your entire body weight pressing against theirs, they have to similarly engage their muscles. And what happens is as that person, particularly in wrestling and grappling oriented sports, when they start really clenching and trying to push back, they're flexing the large muscle groups in their bodies, so the glutes, the quads, the lats, things like that. And those muscle groups start to draw a lot of blood flow. And what actually happens is you basically get a pump like you're, like you're a weightlifter. Your body kind of looks bigger, but you also stiffen. And so two things happen. One, you stiffen and it's harder for you to move quickly, and especially. And two, it also kind of worsens your cardio somewhat because a lot of that blood's being pulled away from the rest of your body. And so when somebody, you know, there's, there's kind of a metaphor or something there about, you know, when you're really engaged with an individual project or when somebody's really obsessed with one particular problem, that same thing happens where it starts to, you know, it's kind of you stare into the abyss and the abyss stares into you, where it starts to dominate that person's mind and all of a sudden they become blind to everything else. And then their, their flexibility declines, similar to being in a clinch uh, in, a, in a combat sport. Um, versus, you know, if you're the coach standing on the sideline of the ring, you look at the guy and you go, obviously he just needs to step to the left and he could just do this move and win. But the guy in the in in as close to it can't see. And it's not just that you literally can't have the perception, but it's also that your body and your mind are adapting to that closeness, right? And so um there's the perspective and also there's the way you are changing in relation to that that distance you have or or don't have in that case. And so one of the things that's really important to do, uh, both as like kind of a PM and also as, as an analyst, is to know how to zoom in and out and to force people to zoom in and out, um, especially in times of stress, because the tendency in times of stress, especially for smart analysts, is to go re-underwrite work and prove that they were right. And they tend to focus on hard problems and they become completely blind. And what will often happen is you have a great smart guy and he, or a girl and, and they will go do a lot of work and they'll be like here's why i think this is a buy and you know it may or may not be but what they're probably missing is that there's a different business that maybe the firm has covered for 10 years and maybe the firm knows the entire management team and all the other share you know 
firm knows that name cold and they'll miss that that name trades to a price where it's just impossible as money. And there's a question of, okay, should we be having a lengthy debate about, you know, whether we should buy this now 40% off SaaS company or should we be deploying capital into this name where we're fairly certain we have a very high forward IRR um, where we have, you know, significant informational advantages and, and you know, uh, we know what we're doing here <laughs> better, right? Um, and uh, and it's very hard to do that without managing the distance from from the content. Um, and you know, it's just, and and this this applies to really like everything else as well. Like you know, it's it's how people are dealing with their you know their relationships, their friends and family. Also, how people are dealing with kind of the digital sphere and and Twitter and things like that. Because I think most people don't realize that like. The way every individual interacts with social media psychologically is very different. I mean, there's some people who we've all seen will get on Twitter and will obsess and just rage post and all this other stuff because they're really close to Twitter. And that's the reality at the moment. And then there's other people who, uh, you know, Twitter's just this, this, just this thing on their, you know, internet phone that they can just tap a couple buttons on and, uh, you know, whatever sometimes, but it's not like, you know, it's it's like a jacket they have in the closet. It's not something that exists in their reality. Um, and so it's really important to understand for yourself and also for your team members kind of like where are they in terms of their distance from the stuff they're interacting with. You see people start to get way too into it. And that and it depends on the personality type of the individuals. And, you know, you don't have to get into like a Myers-Briggs thing, but um, you need to understand just generally like what is the headspace these people are operating in. Um, and again, if the more you can keep people kind of in, in rhythm and following some rituals and with aligned goals and aligned culture, it simplifies a lot of this. The goal of a lot of this is basically you're creating a lot of complexity by thinking about all these things and engineering. And but the only reason you're doing that is to get back to a place of simplicity. So you kind of got to go to a less efficient state to get to a more efficient state, which is, you know, generally the, it's the nature of improvement. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's hard. And so I think as you, um, I think as you're going through hard times, if you have, if you, if you can time in advance to prepare how you're going to handle these things, great. If you don't, the first thing you got to do is go for the rituals. And so there's some obvious things you got to do, right? And so you, you talk to anybody with experience, like, I understand there's a big meme of ne never sell and conviction and all that. And I got to say, I don't know anybody who's made money for more than like 30 years who has any advice other than immediately cut all distractions. Like if it's not a core position for you, just like get it out of the book like that, you know, whatever that thing is, it's drawing a front. Get that out, you know, fix your diet, go to sleep, like get yourself. You need to do the rituals immediately to get yourself back in a position where you can make quality decisions. Um, and you need to you need to accept and forgive yourself up front for not you know, you have not prepared, if you have not prepared in advance for a crisis, then you have not earned the right to make a hero trade. And so if you're going through a hard time and you're, and you're in pain and it's not working, you need to upfront, it, it, just admit, admit and forgive yourself that you are not prepared this time for the hero trade. Fix your behavior, in, like install rituals that actually make sense. And then going forward, your returns will be better. And over time, that's all that matters. Where you are today is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the, the rate of change over time. You cannot control where you are today because that already right now already happened. 
So all you have to focus on is just you have to immediately make the changes so that tomorrow is better and tomorrow is better and, and so on. Um, and once you start instituting the rituals, you can start to kind of build a rhythm around it. And once you build a rhythm around it, then you can start to look at, okay, how are we monitoring the distance and the team? Um, and that's and that's really the key. And and you know the thing is the thing we didn't talk on that I want to highlight is there are there are certain behaviors that you really don't want to do that you see people in bad times do. And the number one one is self isolate. So you see people who are getting depressed, who are having really hard problems, is all of a sudden their friends don't hear from them, and they don't you know their, their social network collapses. They stop speaking to their loved ones. They you know that is a really really bad thing to do, especially when you're in the markets and you're having a hard time. People start self-isolating. You want to not do that. You want to go have more conversations. Now, it's much easier to do that once you've cleaned your, cleaned your own house up. You know, if you cut those positions and you have a blank slate from which to think, it's much easier to do that, which is, again, why that's kind of a keystone behavior. Um, the second thing is they get really nasty. I mean, a lot of people, when they're, when they're in pain, you know, they start getting really critical, and, and, and it's kind of wild. You know, you can see it right now in the, on the Internet. People are getting uh, spicy and there's a lot of trash talk happening and everybody wants to discredit everybody else. And what really everybody's trying to say, if you listen to them, you listen to their inner child talking is everybody's trying to validate themselves. They're, they're like, I didn't mess up. I'm still good. And you know what? Like, you have to actually believe that and then just take behaviors based on that and, and not criticize people. And, you know, and, and at the same time, you want to not spike the ball. If you're, if, you see other people who are losing worse than you or something like that, or, or you know, whatever. You, you don't want to engage in conflicts with anybody, generally speaking, because there's no point, but especially during, during times of, of market turbulence, because markets, all businesses are fundamentally social, but markets are probably fundamentally the most social businesses. The biggest lie I've ever heard is if you want a front on Wall Street, get a dog. This is a business that's entirely about relationships and friendships. And what you'll notice if you look through the history of, the markets is that there are tons of people who blow up many, many times and they never go away. And the answer to why is, you know, some people look at it and say, oh, it's nepotism. No, it's that those people were incredibly helpful and had very strong relationships, good times and bad for a long time. And when something bad happened to them or it was their fault, you know, I don't know, other people were willing to help them. And so when things are going bad, it's an exceptionally bad time to burn bridges or, or, or do things like that, because people do not forget that. If people are down and, they're in your, and they're, they think you're talking trash about them or you're kicking them while, they're, while you're down or while they're down, when things are good again, uh, I don't know if anybody's watched Billions or some of these other shows, but I will tell you hedge fund managers can be spiteful, spiteful people, and frankly, disproportionately so. Um, you know, some of the, you know, there are certain billionaires who are on online, you know, tearing it up with posting with eggs. So I just, you want to be careful. And it's not just like hedge fund billionaires, just in general, like you don't want to be that guy like or girl, it's just not a good look. So you want to make sure you're not self-isolating. You want to make sure you're not, uh, you know, and, and you can use that as a self-indicator. Like if you're, if you're getting angry about somebody on the internet or something like that, you know, it's, it's usually an indicator that something's not right with you. And you want to, you want to try to clean that up. And I understand being, uh, uh, disgruntled. I mean, I'm Irish, like I get it. Uh, but, um, you know, maybe go for a walk or just go do something else or, you know, uh, go on, go on call of duty or something, whatever you gotta do, you gotta build these rituals in so you don't do something stupid. Um, and, and then the other thing I think is, I think is smart is if you do those things like go the other way, reach out, talk to a lot of people, 
be helpful where you can. Um, like one of the best advice I've ever heard from people who are having like depression or feeling bad is like, it's amazing how much better you feel when you help somebody else out. And it can really, cause it gets you out of this headspace where you're focused on yourself, which often happens when things are painful. And so if you can kind of reset yourself to a clean slate, um, work on some of these rituals and maybe start, you know, seeing about helping some other people, you can really start to kickstart, uh, you know, a positive uh, pathway for yourself, even in times that are objectively pretty hard, um, you know, and, you know, I, I think that stuff's really, really, really vital um, because you have to, you have to be able to survive these periods in order to generate a good track record or, or, or what have you. Um, and, and, and more importantly, you need to be functional on the other side. The other thing I would look at is Throughout history, when, when you have a crisis or you have some crazy thing that goes down, there's a lot of people who make money in the crisis or maybe immediately after. And then they're just kind of different people after that, and they can't adapt anymore. Like, they've become so hardened by this extreme stress. Like, a lot of people, I think, disrespect and They think, oh, that guy's stupid or he can't adapt. It's not what happened. What happened is these, these guys neurologically went through something that most people can't even conceive of. Um, and you know, it doesn't mean their decision-making was correct or, or, or wrong, but, um, you know, what, what happens to their body and their minds going through? I mean, I, I can't imagine being somebody who shorted the housing bubble in size, who was maybe ridiculed for years. Like, that is, you know, so terrible from a neurological standpoint. Um, I mean, you might as well get hit in the head with a baseball bat in terms of what that's going to do to your brain, the amount of cumulative stress and then whatever the hell it feels like when it actually works, I mean, it's, it's, it's staggering. And so, you know, you need to figure out how to maintain, maintain a balance because yeah, you might not be the hero of this uh, bear market if it is one or, or, or that one. But again, that's not the goal. The goal is to have longevity in your investing career or your business career or whatever else you're doing to do this for the long term. Right. And so that that can be helpful in people sort of forgiving themselves for maybe not being the hero of the moment is that often being the hero of the moment is not a costless thing. It's a very painful thing. And that stuff really adds up. And you watch these, you know, so many of these people uh, who are great investors, you know, there's a lot of investors who had great track records and then there's a big crisis or something like that. And they do well. In it, but at the end, at the other side of the crisis, that's when they hang up the gloves. They go, look. I just can't anymore. I'm, 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 I'm toast. There's a real cost to be paid for this. You know, Druckenmiller you know, continued his career after, after quantum, but you know, from what I read and I think, uh, more money than God and a few of the books, like, you know, he was just beyond burnt out at, at the end of that. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. You have to have empathy for people on the other side of it. And you, and I think a lot of people, like I keep saying, forgive yourself. Cause I really think that's what a lot of, people ultimately need to do. I think a lot of people are very angry at themselves and angry at others because they missed something or because somebody else had a trade on that they make money on. You have to detach yourself from that. Um, and, and because as long as you, as long as you're festering on the fed or the growth guys or the commodity, guy, whatever it is, as long as you have somebody you think you're fighting against in markets, you're, you're not seeing things clearly. You know, your brain is reformatting all the information in terms of that. And that's something that really a lot of people fall prey to is they create a nemesis in the markets under times of stress. And so you have to kill that if you want to move forward and you want to be able to perform during 
times of stress. And so the goal, this is another money game line, is the goal of investing under stress is serenity. The goal is if, if you can, in times of extreme stress, get your life to be mundane, that's a victory. That's perfection. That's what we're going for. Okay, you've heard it here first, everybody. First of all, what, what a download and what a pep talk. I mean, I'm ready to to completely revamp and upgrade my life. I, I feel like this, this hour has been life-changing, so thank you for that. Um, but also, everybody, get away from Twitter, take a vacation, and then move to Omaha. And uh, no, this was, honestly, this was fantastic. Um, and I really want to thank you for the wealth of ideas and i just kept taking notes i was like this is a great quote and you kept talking i was like wait there's another great this is uh it's fantastic dan thanks so much absolutely hopefully and i know we're way over time so hopefully I something i said makes sense i uh i never i never have any idea but um uh hopefully people get something out of it and uh you know again all these are my opinions only and i could be completely wrong and many many obvious caveats apply 